before we turn to it, uh, would like to spend uh, a few moments in prayer. Uh, relationship with God is, is a two-way conversation, so we want to take some time and, and speak with him. So if you would, just join me in a few moments of prayer. Just take a moment in the, in the silence of this morning to bring whatever is on your heart and your mind to the Lord. He already sees it. He already knows it. But just in your own heart, intentionally kind of turn, turn those things over that you're, you're bringing in this morning to the Lord. Say, God, I'm, I'm here. Uh, this is what I'm bringing to the table. Maybe it's not pretty, but I bring it to you. Would you meet with me where I am? would encourage you to call to mind some of the ways that God has worked in your life, some of the ways that God has blessed your life. Call to mind uh, the people that he's put around you. Call to mind the opportunities that he's given you and the resources that he's given you. And just give, give the Lord thanks for his goodness. Give the Lord thanks for, for blessing your life in so many ways that we just often take for granted. I would encourage you, too, to call to mind um, someone that you love, someone that you care about, that may be hurting or suffering in some way, and would encourage you to pray for them. Ask the Lord to, to work in the lives of the, the people around you. Um, ask him to do a good work in, in the hard stuff of the people's lives that you, that you love. Pray, pray for your loved ones for a moment. Lord God, we thank you that you hear us. Your word tells us that you incline your ear to the cries of your children. We thank you that you hear us, that you're not too far distant to, to work in the stuff of our life. And uh, We thank you that you are active and working, that you, you entered into the plane of our existence in the, in the person of Jesus, the God-man. And you are inviting us in to live life in communion with you. And I just thank you, God, that you are, you are that God. You are, you are a God who draws close, who draws near, and who brings us into relationship with yourself. Uh, we thank you for that. And we thank you that you are committed to doing that. Uh, 
with your people all throughout the world this morning, that we share in a great tradition this morning of gathering together on the morning that Jesus rose from the dead to, to worship and to be together as a family. And I just, I think about our brothers and sisters in, in Serbia, uh, our friends there, and we pray that you would, that you would bless them this morning. I guess they've already, they've already gathered, uh, but Lord, we pray that you would uh, be near to them and work in their lives in a powerful way. And, and your church all throughout the world, Lord, we pray that the, the good news of your kingdom would spread and that it would invade every dark nook and cranny of this world. We pray that you would do that in this city, that the churches of, of Richmond would be blessed, and that you would add to their number day by day those who are being brought into your family, and that together your church here in Richmond would be strong and would be this, this bright, uh, brilliant kind of embassy of your kingdom of light uh, in the midst of a, of a dark and hurting world. Uh, and would you, would you spark that in us this morning? as you communicate your word to us anew today. Ready our hearts to receive it. Would you change us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, um, get that out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. There, there's some uh, little black ESV Bibles under the pews. I don't know if they, they make their way all the way all the way back, um, but grab a Bible and follow along. would love for you to, to track with me this morning, and I want to start asking you a question. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest questions of life? What do you think are some of the biggest questions that, that you or the people around you uh, ask on a regular basis, those sort of existential questions that, that keep you and the people that you love up at night? What are some of those big questions of life? And you can, you can throw a few out if you've got one that rises to the surface. Why does bad stuff happen? Yeah, that's a good one. I find myself asking often, why does bad stuff happen to me? <laughs> yeah. What else? Big questions. The big questions of life. Why am I here? Why am I here? What's my, what's my purpose? Yeah. What else? Big questions. Maybe some of you are just like, I don't know, man. I'm just, I'm just coasting. Who was it? Who, uh, one comedian, um, who's the guy, Steve Martin, said uh, that, that uh, you learn enough in philosophy class in college. Uh, you don't learn much, but you learn enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. These questions that sort of haunt us, these big questions of life. Um, well, you know, I think I'll just throw a couple more out there. Maybe you, you have them mulling over in your head, but questions like, why am I here? Uh, what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? How can I be a better person? How can I find true and lasting fulfillment? And I think all of these questions can be, can be summed up as the pursuit of human flourishing. The pursuit of human flourishing, what the ancient Greek philosophers called the good life. Uh, what God's ancient people, the Jews, called shalom or blessing. 
That's what the Constitution of the United States refers to as the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. Our biggest questions give voice to our longing for human flourishing. And really, this desire for for human flourishing, for, for happiness, is, I think, one of the most deeply human experiences. It's one of the primary things that sets us apart from all other living creatures. You think about it. We're always searching and and asking and working and fighting and and, and building and protecting and creating and loving, not just out of instinct, not just for the perpetuation of our species, but in pursuit of a more meaningful and significant and fulfilling life. Our pursuit of of flourishing and happiness is one of the few things that unites us with with people from, from all over the world and all throughout history. Now, sure, you might find different answers to the question of where to find flourishing, depending on what you know, culture you're in. But no matter where you go, you're going to find the question being asked. Now, it might surprise you to hear this, but the question of where to find true and lasting fulfillment, happiness, is not foreign to the Bible. Again, this might surprise you, depending on what sort of theological tradition you're coming from, but, but God actually cares very deeply about your happiness. One scholar who's become a mentor of mine from a distance, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, suggests that the, the question of human flourishing is at the core of the entire message of Scripture. You know, the Bible teaches us all sorts of fascinating things about God and his plan for for us and for the world. And the more you read through it, the more clear it becomes that one of the key threads which ties all of it together is God's answer to the question, where can we find true and lasting fulfillment, shalom, blessedness, flourishing, and not just in the life to come, but in the here, in the now. The Bible is really God's invitation to the good life. And with that as our backdrop, we come this morning to a new sermon series on three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, on a section of scripture which, which Dr. Pennington again calls the epicenter of God's vision for human flourishing, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember nothing else this morning, remember this, that God is inviting you to a life of flourishing, even, dare I say, to a life of happiness, which can only truly be found under his rule and in participation with his kingdom. God is inviting you to a life of of flourishing and, and happiness, which can only truly be found under his rule and in participation with his kingdom. There's no better place to find life than under the reign of a good king. Let's read Matthew 4. We'll, we'll back, up, uh, we'll back uh, up to chapter 4, starting in verse 23, which will lead us into the Sermon on the Mount. And then I'll just read the first two chapters. Uh, the first two chapters. You would not be happy about that if I read the first two chapters. Uh, I'll read the first two verses of chapter 5 as we set the stage for the Sermon on the Mount. So read along with me, chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all the sick 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most well-known sections of the Bible for for Christians and non-Christians alike. It's actually kind of a helpful place to turn to when talking to somebody who's not a Christian, who's not a believer in in Jesus as uh, as the Son of God, Savior of the world, because there's a lot of familiarity here, a lot of common ground here in the Sermon on the Mount. It includes familiar passages like, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Do not be judged, lest you be judged. Uh, Sorry, do not judge, lest you be judged. Love your enemies, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This sermon has towered over time with some of the most compelling ethical statements ever made in human history. Ethical statements, which as we read through them, we realize present kind of like an impossible standard that's led, I think, many people to misunderstand what's going on here in the sermon. And so before we dig into it, I want to present two pitfalls of interpretation that we want to avoid as we come to the Sermon on the Mount and many of the the ethical and uh, virtuous kind of invitations of of Jesus. And and the first is to read the Sermon on the Mount like a a grading rubric, like a grading rubric uh, before God, right? This would be to read the sermon like uh, what, what scholars would refer to as like a legalist, Right, a legalist, somebody who, who, who believes that we have to earn our way to God by being good enough, by doing enough good stuff. Here we have a bunch of uh, kind of ethical uh, implications and invitations. And so if we fulfill these perfectly or we fulfill these enough, then God will accept us and we'll be with him forever. Right, it's a grading rubric. This is how the Pharisees of Jesus' day operated. They were the leaders that tried to check all the, all the boxes so that when they died, the scorecard would be good enough. Now, the problem with this, and really the problem with both of these views is actually that the Sermon on the Mount itself confronts both of these these views. Uh, But but here first, the the problem is that Jesus starts his sermon in in verse 3. What does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think you might find this as as good news. This is a, a blessing for those who acknowledge their great spiritual lack. Blessed are those who know they just can't get it together. Blessed are those who know that they're not good enough. That's the starting point for the whole sermon. And later in the sermon, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, at the center of his prayer, there's, there's this confession of sin and, and plea for forgiveness. Right? There's this acknowledgement that, like, we can't do it perfectly. I, I, like, I can't live up to this. Lord, forgive us of our sins. As we forgive those who sin against us, Matthew 6, 12. And that's not to mention all that Jesus did and taught throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is referred uh, to by the, by the Pharisees as the friend of sinners. Not the friend of the religious elite. Not, not the friend of the, one who, the ones who have it all together on the outside. But he was the friend of sinners. He was the friend of screw-ups, praise God. 
And he was a friend of sinners who would go on to, to die a, a brutal death on a cross as a substitute. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this sage that teaches these these virtues in the Sermon on the Mount is also the Savior who sacrifices himself before a holy God in order that the the wrath of God that is due all of us because because of our rebellion against him would fall on Jesus' head and not ours. So that that God could, could satisfy his justice And in so doing, unlock the storehouses of his grace and mercy that he so deeply desires to pour into the lives of sinners like us. And the father accepted the sacrifice of the son. He rose him from the dead and seated him at his right hand with all authority in heaven and on earth, that we now always have a king who's approachable, that we can come to, who's who's ready to give us grace in our time of need, not judgment, regardless of how good of a job we do. A pastor friend of mine, David Dwight, says, Jesus is your good enough. Jesus is your good enough. But this glorious and central truth, I think, has led some to swing to the opposite end of the spectrum and read the Sermon on the Mount as an 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 impossibly high bar which is not even worth pursuing. This would be to to read the Sermon on the Mount like an antinomian, which is kind of a scary word, but it just means uh, those who are against the law of God. Anti, against, namas is the Greek word for law. Antinomian is to be against the law, to say, wow, this is just too much, so I'm just going to dodge it. This is just too much, so I'm just going to dodge it. This is This is the view that Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Cheap grace. It's to say that, man, since since there's no way we could fulfill this perfectly, there's no use even trying. Jesus is going to save us anyways, so we just need to have enough faith. But that interpretation doesn't work because Jesus says in verse 19 of chapter 5, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of the sermon, in chapter 7, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. So it seems like Jesus wants us to live into this, to grow into this, to actually walk in in these uh, ethical invitations that he's laying out in the sermon. He says as much at the end of the the gospel in Matthew 28. He he calls his, his followers to go into the world and to make disciples, to make more followers of Jesus of all nations, baptizing them and doing what? Teaching them, and not just teaching them, but teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. The Christian mission, friends, is not just to make converts so that people are ready to go to heaven when they die. The the Christian mission is to help people follow Jesus and to experience transformed lives in the here and now. Transformed lives that will go on to contribute to human flourishing in our neighborhoods and in our society. 
The main problem, I think, with both of these interpretations, the, the legalist and the antinomian, is that they're far too concerned with life after death. They're far too concerned with how we get to heaven when we die. The legalist wants a checklist to accomplish it in their own strength, which is crushing and exhausting, doesn't work. And the antinomian believes they can't do any of this anyway, so why bother trying? Let's just wait around until Jesus zaps us out of here. But as C.S. Lewis has said, both of those views are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. <laughs> and earthly good is precisely Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not primarily concerned with how you get to heaven when you die. He's concerned with how he gets heaven to you while you live. It's not a roadmap for us getting to heaven. It's a roadmap for getting heaven down to us. As he encourages us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So really the sermon is not given primarily to those who are trying to figure out how to get into the kingdom. But to those who have already been brought into it. Look at verse 1. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. It's a sermon for those who have already or who are on their way to trusting in Christ, to be the Messiah, to be their king. It's, it's a sermon for those who have already been granted passport to the kingdom of God and are now learning over a lifetime by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts how to act like citizens of the kingdom. But what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's like a, like a constitution. The constitution of the kingdom of God. Laying out the, the culture of the kingdom which is even now advancing in our hearts and in our homes as we follow Jesus. And as his rule and reign comes to bear in our hearts and in our homes as we follow him. And as we lean into these virtues, it leads to human flourishing. It leads to the good life. It leads to blessing and shalom. It leads to this, this, this sense that your life is, is full of meaning and, and fulfillment and it's well integrated in the way that God has made you. Now I want to draw your attention to two simple points. One is that, and I've already kind of shared some of both of these, but one is that the king, the king is here. The king is here, and the second is that the king is speaking. The king is here, and the king is speaking. The king is here. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4 again. And he went through all Galilee. He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So really we hit the ground running here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus, you got this 30-year-old carpenter from the town of Nazareth, and he's established himself as a kind of a rogue rabbi of sorts. He's traveling throughout the mountainous region of Galilee in northern Israel, and he's teaching, he's gathering a following, and he's working miracles the likes of which the world has never seen. And in so doing, he's demonstrating that he's no ordinary rabbi. You might imagine the, the crowds as he's gathering this following asking, who is this man that possesses such unrivaled power? 
Well, he is the Messiah, of course. He is the king. He's the one we've been waiting for. The one that was promised so long ago. Don't you remember? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of his shalom there will be no end. And he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it from that time forth and forevermore. Don't you know this is the king? If we're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount properly in the coming weeks, we have to see it situated in the context of God's kingdom. And when I say God's kingdom, what I mean is the the rule and reign of God in the hearts and homes of God's people that over time leads to human flourishing in society. The rule and reign of God starting in the hearts and homes of God's people that over time leads to human flourishing in society. This is what Matthew this close friend and disciple of Jesus, this Jewish scholar writing to a primarily Jewish audience would have wanted them to think about. He starts his gospel out in chapters 1 and 2 calling Jesus the son of David. You remember David was the king in Israel. He was kind of the representative of God's rule amongst the people. Jesus is the son of David. He's the the promised king that would come. And he concludes in chapter 28 of his gospel with Jesus claiming all authority in heaven and on earth. As Herman Ritterboss has said, the whole of the preaching of Jesus is concerned with the kingdom of God and how it's invading our lives in the here and the now. This is why he's going around healing and working miracles. He's demonstrating that he's the king, that he's the one to come and take back that which is rightfully his, the world, the world that he loves, that has been in captivity to Satan's sin and death. And here, friends, at this point, we must follow uh, C.S. Lewis in dismissing the silly notion of Jesus as just this kind of nice, hippie teacher guy who's got some like cool stuff to say every once in a while. Everything from the way that he lived and what he taught and what eyewitnesses, even his enemies, said about him leaves no room for the kind of nice hippie teacher guy that's got some cool stuff to say every once in a while. The testimony of history is that he was nothing short of a man claiming to be God and calling for bended knees. So if you're going to reject Jesus, would just encourage you to at least reject the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, not some fake counterfeit version of him. At least read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the Gospel of Matthew. Read the Gospel of John and, and take Jesus on his own terms. He was either a sociopathic cult leader of the worst degree or he was who he said he was. The king who's come to set the world to rights and to give you, this morning, life. And life to the full. The king is here. And this, really, this Sermon on the Mount is the king's manifesto. The king is speaking as we sort of bring the plane down for landing. When we first started uh, meeting here for church a couple years ago, uh, I preached from the Big Daddy pulpit. I was like, you know, we got like young congregation, we need to teach people to like revere the word of God. So we're going we're gonna to go up there, we're going to teach from, from up top. 
And it was, it was really good being able to look down on, on all of you for a time. And uh, we had a, a missionary friend of mine. Well, actually, he's, well, he is a missionary, I guess. Well, he's a native Serbian who lives in Serbia and is a church planter in that region. Um, and he came and, and preached. And he refused to preach from the pulpit. Part of it, I think, is he's like, Stoicha, I love you if you're listening to this. But he's like, pretty short guy. So, like, <laughs> I think he was worried that everybody would be able to, to see him properly. But, but I think that the main reason why he didn't want to preach from up there was he was like, no, Jonathan, bro, what are you doing? You need to be down with the people. You need to be with the people. Because <laughs> he knew that this kind of creates this sort of, like, distance, this sort of gap between, between teacher and, and people. So, so here I am leaning on this. I'm still, I guess I'm still on a stage a little bit. Uh, but I think Stoicha was on to something because in this day, rabbis didn't get up on a high platform and teach down to people. They would, they would sit in a synagogue and they would usually have a little stand next to them as they sat with the, with the scrolls next to them. And the people would come and they would put the scroll in their lap and they would, they would really have conversation. They would have dialogue around what these things meant and how it applied to our lives. It was approachable. Jesus didn't go up onto the mountain to, to stand above everyone. He didn't go up on the mountain for, for um, acoustic purposes. He actually went to sort of withdraw from, from the crowds that were pressing in on him so that he could have a conversation with his disciples. Like while Jesus is the king, he's also kind and approachable. He sat down. His disciples came to him. The original Jewish audience would have read this and probably even seen this, those who were there, and understood the connection to Moses, to Moses who went up on the mountain and gave instructions for life in God's kingdom. But really they would have picked up on the differences. Where Moses, the great leader of the old covenant, went up to an unapproachable mountain covered in thunder and fire and smoke, and if you touched it, you were dead. Jesus goes up on to the mountainside and he sits and he invites people next to him to come and have a conversation about the heart of God's law. Many scholars believe this sermon would have taken place probably over hours. What we have here is kind of a highlight reel. It was likely dialogue with, with his disciples about what the nature of the kingdom was like. And the first thing that this, that this kind and approachable king says as he speaks is markarios, blessed, markarios, blessed. And blessed isn't even really a very good translation. I think um, a better one would be, and this is how uh, Christians have historically translated it, is happy. Now, happy's lost a lot of weight and meaning in the last 100 years. Uh, but in the past, and, and going back to the ancients, the word happy meant this, this full, abundant life. Uh, this, this full, abundant life where your life was integrated and it was meaningful and it had purpose and it had joy. That's what happy meant. And here Jesus is saying, happy. He's entering right into the Greco-Roman conversation about where to find happiness. And he's saying, happy, blessed, flourishing, full of life is the poor in spirit. Jesus is sitting in a, in a long line of sages and he's saying, I'm going to tell you where where full life is to be found. 
He gives us, friends, these, these virtues, these ethical invitations, not to, not to crush us with, with a bunch of rules that we can't possibly follow. He, he invites us into a way of life in the same way that I, that I instruct my son. Like when my son Bridger is taking Hot Wheels cars and he's throwing them directly above his head into the air and then they come down and they hit him right in between the eyes. Ah! Like, dude, let's, let's not throw toys, right? I, I'm not encouraging him to, to not throw toys because I'm, I'm trying to, to ruin his life or to, to ruin his happiness or to, to lay down a bunch of heavy burdens on his back. I'm trying to invite him into a way of life that's wise. If you do this, it's going to hurt you. But if you play with the Hot Wheels cars the way that they're intended to be played with, you're going to be happy. You're going to be blessed. That's what Jesus is inviting us into in this sermon. And he makes really two, I think, unique claims. And one, and I'll say them simply, is that he himself is the source of flourishing. He himself is the source of our flourishing. He's not just grabbing from like this this moral bag of virtues and saying, hey, try to like do this stuff and it'll make you, make you happy. He's saying, no, come to me. I'm the one who can, who can show you how to live these things out. Really, the whole Sermon on the Mount is a picture. It's a portrait of who Jesus is. Saying, come to me and you will find life. Whoever walks in my ways and builds their life on my teaching will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Jesus... The person of Jesus is the center of human flourishing. Do you want to be happy, friends? Is that something that you're interested in? Joy, happiness, fulfillment, meaning? You will find it in communion with Christ, who is the king of all goodness and beauty and truth. And the other unique claim that he makes, which we don't have to read far to see it, is that the blessings the happiness of his kingdom comes to us in an upside-down sort of way. His kingdom is upside-down. Blessed are those who are impoverished in spirit. Like, blessed are those who don't have it together and keep making mistakes. Making mistakes doesn't sound very fun. Having lack doesn't sound very fun. But Jesus says it's the way to flourishing. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are sad because the world is broken and your life is broken and your dreams are unrealized and darkness presses in on you and all you can do is weep. Blessed are you in that place. Blessed are the meek. Well, that sounds kind of nice, maybe kind of positive, but the meek are those who don't get who don't get what they, what they rightfully deserve or have earned. They're those who get passed over. They're those who don't get any credit. They're unseen. Overlooked. We think that blessing and flourishing comes from, from having a lot of stuff. Right? From having a lot of comfort from things not going bad in our lives. Jesus says, no, his kingdom is upside down. His kingdom, actually, friends, comes through a cross. 
It comes through death. But on the other side of that cross is life and life to the full. And so I want to encourage you in the coming weeks to try to, um, would encourage you like each week to just read the Sermon on the Mount one time. For, for those, especially for those of you who are going to be going to be with us in the coming weeks, to read the Sermon on the Mount once per week. It doesn't take you very long. It'll take you probably like, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. Uh, and try to do that once per week. Let this message, let these words of Jesus get down deep in your bones so that as we talk about it, there's a, there's a familiarity there. And I think you'll find some, some surprising things as you, as you dig around in it. So what do we do as we go from here? The king is here. The king is speaking. He's inviting us into a life of flourishing. Really how we respond to this is in two ways. We respond to this by bending the knee. By bending the knee to King Jesus. What does true, genuine faith in Christ look like? It looks like swearing fealty to a king. It looks like bending the knee. It looks like saying, hey, you are now in authority over my life. Like, I'm, I'm no longer going to live based on my own autonomy and independence. I'm going to come in and submit to the way of life that you are inviting me to. I'm going I'm to submit to you. I'm going to submit to your means of salvation. Right? I'm going to acknowledge that I can't do it on my own, and I'm going to receive what you have done for me, and I'm going to follow you all the days of my life by the power of your Holy Spirit. Bend the knee. Right? Jesus needs to be not just your Savior, but your Lord. Is your life submitted to the kingship of Jesus? Is your life submitted to the kingship of Jesus? And then the second way that we respond is to be blessed. We bend the knee, and then we be blessed. Jesus wants to invite you in to the good life, to the life where you don't have to see and experience the hard stuff of life as just death, as just darkness, as just something to be avoided at all costs, where you can see things like, like sadness and longing and unmet expectation and brokenness and confession of sin as a means to fulfillment and joy. It's radical, but it's real. Bend the knee and be blessed. Jesus does not just save us from something. He doesn't just save us from our sin, which he does. He doesn't just save us from the judgment of God that we deserve, which he does. He doesn't just save us from things. He saves us to things. He saves us to a new and better way of life where we can experience true and lasting flourishing. So come, bend the knee to the king, and allow him to bless you with the life of flourishing that you so desperately long for. It can only be found in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you with much gratitude and, and thanks this morning that you, you came into this world. You, you pursued us. You brought the kingdom of heaven near. As you said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
we can now experience the, the goodness and the beauty that you designed us for in communion with you. And Lord, we so desperately need that. We so desperately want that. Life is hard. Life is hard. Life is full of, of brokenness and challenge and suffering, though we often try to avoid it. We need a kingdom where those things can be resources for a flourishing life. Please, I pray, Lord, that if anybody here has not bended the knee to, to you, that you would call them by name. That you would reveal yourself to them this morning as a good, a good king. A good king who loves them and wants what's best for them. And would they bend the knee to you? Would they submit themselves to you? Would they look to you as the, the Lord of their life, who can, the only one who can give them what their heart longs for? And for those of us, Lord, who are citizens of your kingdom, would you strengthen us by the power of your spirit to believe that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And help us to encourage each other. Help us to be a church that when, when a brother or a sister is suffering or, or complaining, that we say, hey, God is blessing you in your mourning. He's doing something in your mourning. You will inherit the earth. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. The poverty that you feel is good. God is working. May we encourage one another in these truths. Thank you, Jesus, for being a good king. We love you, and we look to you now. In your name, amen.